the reason I fell into photography to begin with was through uh, a love of the outdoors and hiking. I was lucky that my my family encouraged us all to go hill walking and to sort of, you know, get soaked on Dartmoor and up at the English lakes on holiday. And through that grew a love of, of photography. I'm Peter Holiday, and this is The Land Behind. Join me in conversation with a range of guests as I venture beyond the visible in search of new and different ways of understanding the relationship between photography, perception and place. After taking a summer break from recording the podcast, it's a pleasure to return to these conversations with the Dartmoor-based British photographer Nicholas White to speak about the interests and concerns that motivate his long-form and research-based large-format practice. A graduate of Plymouth College of Art, Nicholas gathers many of his motifs from the surrounding British landscape within which he lives, and much of his photographs can be characterised by underlying questions of land ownership and environmental rights. Having been born and raised within the gaze of the Scottish Highlands, I begin my conversation with Nicholas by asking him about his own experience of the Caledonian landscape, the horizon wherefrom he drew the pictures of his first book, Black Dots. This series, which Nicholas photographed over numerous trips, led him on a journey through faraway bends and glens in pursuit of lonely mountain bothies and the people who used them. Following the publication of Black Dots in 2018 by the Highlands-based publisher Ian Sargent of Another Place Press, Nicholas began another body of work titled Carpathia, an ongoing multi-year project following the Romanian NGO Foundation Conservation Carpathia as they work to establish a wilderness reserve in the southern Carpathian Mountains. Along the way, our discussion keeps returning to the value of artistic collaboration. Since 2020, Nicholas has been working with the cameraless photographic artist Gary Fabian Miller on a project named Crucible, which focuses on the surrounding landscape of his home in Dartmoor, a place which has inspired poets, writers and artists alike for centuries. From his perspective, as a landscape-based photographer, I asked Nicholas what it has been like to contemplate a new path through the history of this well-trodden place. In addition to his self-directed personal practice, Nicholas routinely works on professional assignments for clients including National Geographic, The Telegraph and Time magazine. With this in mind, I ask him about the parallels and tensions which exist between his artistic approach and his editorial briefs. These conversations are about going into places we may not have been before. So if you happen to find value in my discussion with Nicholas and would like to help me nurture new understandings concerning the relationship between photography, perception and place, please consider supporting me on Patreon via the link in the description. Without further ado, my conversation with Nicholas White now begins. Nicholas White, I'm very glad to speak with you this evening and thank you very much for taking the time out of your weekend for this. Thank you for having me. I first learned of your practice uh, whilst you were working on your series Black Dots uh, and this was before it had been published as a book 
And whilst I understand that you photographed Bothies across the British Isles, um, including England and Wales, I understand, or it appears to me at least, that the majority of these images have been exposed amidst the wet uh, and drich peat bogs of the Scottish Highlands. And the Caledonian landscape is clearly a very important point of reference to your practice as a photographer and in general, I assume. And uh, having hiked across many of the same bends and glens as this venture led you, I not only recognised the landscapes in Black Dots from my own experience growing up in Scotland and hiking throughout the years there, but I've also stayed overnight at many of the same bothies as your photographs. So, such as Pien Minach or Strabeg or Hutchison Memorial Hut in the Cairngorms. And so for this reason, um, your beautiful images, they were immediately, I immediately felt a, a personal connection to them. Um, and so I'm interested to know what inspired you to make a series about Bothies in the first place. Yeah, thank you, man. I mean, so initially, the my plan wasn't to travel to Scotland to photograph Bothies. Um, my the reason I fell into photography to begin with was through uh, a love of the outdoors and hiking. I was lucky that my my family encouraged us all to go hill walking and to sort of, you know, get soaked on Dartmoor and up at the English lakes on holiday. And through that grew a love of, of photography, but I'd never, I'd never been to Scotland. So all through arts college, I'd never been to Scotland and everybody was telling me how, you know, as a landscape photographer, you know, you must make a pilgrimage to the Highlands at least once in your life. And so at the time, I was I was I wasn't really thinking about making projects I wasn't really thinking in that way I was more interested in the single landscape the single picture the the view you know and being a student and not having a lot of money I began researching ways that I could explore the more remote corners of of the Scottish landscape um, on a budget and it was through that that I found about found out about Bothies you know, these kind of small huts in the most wild and remote corners of the Scottish landscape, free to use, unlocked, no booking system, very primitive and basic, but everything that you would need to survive a night in the mountains or to connect, um, you know, a longer walk or to facilitate access to more remote hills. So I started researching these bothies purely from a logistical point of view, really as okay cool this could be somewhere that I can be in order to go and make pictures and it was through that research and through um kind of mapping these boffies and, and and the roots and everything that I began to realize that actually there's something very beautiful here about what the boffy is and the boffy within the landscape not just you know the sort of visual quality of small building in big place but also the community of strangers that gravitate to these places for a night or two and then disperse again. Um, and so really that, that was where the idea came from, originated through using the Bothy as others would use the Bothy. And then quickly the Bothy became the sort of protagonist, if you like. Um, and 
my attention switched to the Bothy becoming the subject of the photographs. Um, at the time, I was working a full-time job as a studio photographer, um, photographing football boots and other other exciting things. Um, and so the way I had to plan the project, I couldn't just disappear for three years. You know, it was definitely, I had to plan it around available holiday, bank holidays, all this kind of stuff that your full-time employment allows. Um, and so I mapped every single Bothy in the Mountain Bothy Association network on Ordnance Survey maps. That's a lot of Bothies. That's a lot. It's over a hundred. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. a lot of, that's a lot of maps. Um, and I, I would, I thought, okay, so I'm not going to photograph every single one because I think that would be a very boring book. Um, and also it's not necessary to do that. Um, but in order to, to figure out which ones I was going to photograph, I had to map every single one. Um, or at least that's what I thought I had to do part of the process. I had to map it. So everyone was mapped the routes, the access points, how long it would take to get to each one. All that was written down. And through that, I was able to kind of build a realistic 20 or 30 or so that I think I could visit and photograph in the allotted time that I had. Um, yeah. And then that, that sort of, there began sort of three years or so of, of trudging out to Bothy's. Yeah. It's interesting that you spoke about maps. Um, mm. In my last conversation with Emmanuel Cedricvist, he, we spoke about maps and the differences mm. between cartographic representation mm. and the and photographic representation yep uh, what differences did you did you find so I, I find how, I did, mean, how, how did you use these maps and in what way did you did they give you access to this place that sure you would end up photographing okay yeah good question i think obviously being a hill walker anyway, I, I use maps as for their intended purpose for navigation and finding bearings and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. But what was really helpful for me is using them to be able to almost visualize where I might be able to photograph from, mm -hmm. what viewpoints there were, what mm -hmm. high ground there was to give me elevation around the Bothy. Um, so not just in terms of planning the walk in, um, figuring out where the tricky parts were, any river crossings and how that might change depending on the time of year and rainfall and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But but also living in Devon and planning work in Scotland, looking at the maps, I was sort of able to figure out, okay, if I was going to photograph this bothy, then there are these hills that have clear line of sight or this, this glen that provides a really nice framing device for this bothy. And I was able to kind of visualize that yeah. on a map. So when I walked in, and I was yeah. only there for a maximum of three nights, you, you're not, it doesn't feel like you're walking into a totally unknown environment. You feel as though you've read the landscape as best as you can remotely. And then you just have to make any sort of slight changes on the ground. So you were visualizing um, the landscape before you were yeah, even yeah. standing there. Yeah. And yeah. So I, I, it's something that I've done. I, I did that even with my Dartmoor work, my first body of work. So it was maps, all done. Maps. Well, as a landscape based photographer, maps are a big part of oh, your they're, practice yeah. they're massive yeah, yeah they're, they're huge same for me as well oh right okay yeah. um for the same reasons as well to sort of figure out where you're going to um, where you're going to be or not only for vision not purely for uh visualizing the landscape for photographic purposes but na land navigation for land navigation yeah. and yeah. maps well maps are essential when you're going into these empty quarters 
So yeah, of course. You can't do it yeah. without them. It would be stupid no. to even try. It'd be it's daft. And I mean, you know, I had a paper map always in the bag, um, as you're always taught to do, map and compass in the bag. Uh, but then modern technology being what it is, I would also have a GPS, which made things a lot easier. But um, what's interesting though is that the the world that appears on the map is not the world mm. in front of your eyes. And yet not somehow they're in some strange way they're related and yeah. they complement each other. And yeah. you know, it's it's the information that your your eyes can't give you that is already mm-hmm. saved upon the map. Yeah, exactly yeah. that. And the map doesn't give you a hundred percent all the information you need. No. You have to be there on the ground to really learn about that place and understand and it, the landscape anyway. Yeah. The map doesn't tell you where the, the boulder fields are. No, it doesn't tell you that. <laughs> Even the um, most detailed map does not tell you yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. And, it, it, you know, the amount of um, foot bridges that I, or stepping stones that I've got to on a map that uh, are apparently not there in reality. Um, yeah, yeah. So you can't rely 100% on them. But, you know, there are certain viewpoints that I'd planned. They've gone, oh, I think this would be a really good place to set the camera up. But obviously the map doesn't show that there's a, a big hawthorn tree in the way or anything like that. So there yeah, are adjustments yeah. that you make on the ground. But for the most part, I was able to figure out where I definitely didn't need to go with the camera, where where there was, I couldn't get a clear photograph that I wanted to get, you know. Yeah. So the the maps allowed you to access a place that was otherwise very wild. Yeah. yeah. And t- totally alien to me. I'd never stepped foot n- north of the border. So like, yeah, yeah. I didn't know anything about the place. It was only through visualizing it on maps before going there. Yeah, yeah. And um, what? What other dimensions were there to the process of getting to these places? Like, um, I mean, as in logistically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of sleeping in the back of my dad's Citroen <laughs> that I bought off him. A lot of sleeping in the back of cars. Um, obviously, the, the length of time that I was allowed to be away um, for, you know, because I had a full-time job, I would book Monday to Friday off. And so if the weather's bad the weather's bad and you just kind of have to deal with that because I'm only there for and two of those days I spent driving, you know, cause it's so, it's so far. Yeah. Um, and so I, I would say that a, a huge part of the, 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 the obstacle of, of overcoming, overcoming obstacles in the project was logistical um, and sort of figuring out how can I get myself to that place at that point at that time. And once I'm there, it's everything else just kind of comes kind of naturally and you're yeah. kind of excited and, you know. Um, so there was a lot of scheduling in advance. A lot of scheduling, a lot of planning. And that's that's very important when you're working yourself through mm-hmm. these this challenging terrain of the of the Scottish Highlands. Sure, massively because important. It's you're not just carrying your um, photographic equipment, you're also carrying food and yep. um, a tent probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the equipment that you need, spare clothes, um, coal, firewood. Yeah. Yep. And that's heavy. Mm -hmm. And obviously weight also means extra calories. Yeah. So you, you really have to, you really, when you're scheduling, you have to sort of, it's it's an entire economy of its own. Yeah. You know, you're budgeting your, your um, food, and your rations yep. for every day. Yep. And the, well, at least that's how I make many of my pictures too. Um, right. In, okay. In, in Scotland. And also when I've been photographing in Lapland. 
These are these are trips that can last a few days to a few weeks for me. Yeah. And everything needs to be carried. Um mm-hmm. the, the, I think I think my photographic equipment well my photographic equipment it only takes up about less than probably a fifth of the entire weight of my backpack. Yeah. So it's yeah there's a, it it requires a huge amount of prior research. Yeah, a lot of research and you know I I don't I don't consider myself necessarily a gear nerd, but you kind of have to become one in order to be efficient on these sorts of trips. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, weight is a huge concern. You don't want to get you can't have a really heavy Manfrotto studio tripod. No, absolutely. Um not. you can't have any of and you know, a large format camera isn't that heavy, but it is bulky and it takes yeah. up a lot of volume. And you're working reduces, with large format, yeah? Yeah, working yeah. with um, 5.4. And so that takes up volume in the bag. And so then it drastically reduces the amount of space you've got for, you know, bothies you carry your own fuel in, as you know. So yeah. firewood, coal maybe, food and drink, your stove, all that stuff, it just takes up space. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, planning that, but also having to book the trips in advance to to appease my boss you know yeah i could i couldn't just go oh there's a weather window i'm leaving tomorrow like i have to book it four weeks in advance so you're just kind of hoping you're looking at long range weather and the mountain weather information and kind of going but you know scotland you, you can't estimate that yeah. far in advance but if there is any charm to these moldy and damp bothies it's that you don't need to book them in advance you just turn well, there's up that there is and, that and hope that to... there's space and there and usually there usually is space people make space yeah, yeah. yeah even if it's even if it's a busy places like chenevar or karurbothy and the kengoms like you know they're busy ones but they always make room um i never had to camp outside of one yeah yeah and um, so you, but you yeah I, I think some people prefer camping because it means that there's not uh someone going in and out of the door all the time yeah, 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 that there is that, and but you know, so yeah, usually the area around the Bothy is so well trodden that it's like it makes a really good camp spot. Yeah, um, yeah. and people who might feel a little bit uncomfortable being in a being in a, a Bothy that's crowded or whatever. But for me personally, like I, a big part of the project was meeting and interacting with people as yeah. well, and so it was hugely important that I was in there, interacting with them, making conversation with them. Yeah, know? and the people that you meet are. Mm. I said this to you before. Yeah. They're they're as wacky as you are. Oh, yeah, at exactly. From, at, at least from my own experience. Yes, they're yeah. out there for similar reasons. They don't know why they're out there. Just like yeah. I don't really know why I'm out there. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're just you're just kind of there, yeah. um, and you've chosen to leave your comfortable home to to spend a night in this dank, <laughs> wet place. But for you know, for a lot of people the, as well, the the bothy is the destination. Like they're not going climbing or they're not doing all this stuff the next day a lot of people mm-hmm. the reason for going out is to get to the bothy and to have that experience and why do you think that is i think it just offers something that you can't get from your day-to-day life for many people you know mm. um and i think i include the interaction with strangers as part of that yeah. it's part of that special experience if you have it up to yourself it's obviously magical and that complete isolation and having this kind of sanctuary in this remote and wild place to and, yourself. Yeah. And feeling the history and feeling all the layers of history in there, um, even predating the, the Bothy days. And when it was, you know, gamekeepers 
and it was a worked place. Mm-hmm. You can feel it. You can feel it in these buildings. You when when you walk in, the first thing that hits you, if they all smell the same, they smell of the thousands of fires that have burnt there before you've gotten there. Yeah. And even though they're in remote places, and even though you might feel quite lonely, there's something they always have this feeling of you've just arrived as someone's just left, like someone's just been there before you. They feel yeah. lived in, there's they a, feel inhabited. Yeah. They're they're haunted. They're yeah. haunted. There's this energy by the, go- almost... by the ghosts. And of course, it of turns, course. It turns out that people like me and you are the ghosts. Exactly, exactly <laughs> that. Exactly. Um, um, and we're contributing to that history, which is great. Really exciting. And, you know, you can leave notes in the visitors books, but you know, if you're looking your head torch goes across the wall and you can see physical etchings into the wall of people that have been there before you. Yeah. That's and items left behind, you know, um, it, I was in it, a, uh, last year, I did 300 kilometers across Lapland. Well done. From Kielpisjärvi to a place in Sweet, which is on the Swed- uh, Finnish side of the border. And I walked north, uh, south uh, west towards a place in Sweden called Nikalokta. Mm-hmm. And these are the traditional homelands of the Sami people. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to stay in a reindeer herding cabin. Right. Um, just to, to feel that history, to... Yep. To learn how this landscape has been or is used by the people who call it home, yeah, i.e. The, the Sami people. And I ended up in this semi-abandoned reindeer herding cabin and it was the second night. And yeah. all over the walls uh, w- w- was graffiti, some of which was written in the Sami language. Wow. And some of the graffiti was even very well it was very cultural it was it was the the sami people to 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 know who owns which reindeer they cut Hmm. marks in the reindeer's ears okay and little notches yeah and there were even um illustrations of the notches that they were making in their reindeer's ears and so it was fascinating to see you know this this on the walls this yeah. the walls speaking to you literally yeah. um in the language of the local culture even if i couldn't understand it i had a I had a sense of what was being spoken um, yeah here and of, of course that's not that's no that's not new that's like contemporary cave paintings you know where they've 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 found these these caves with with paintings of animals and um and other people in the environment and now you know, go into a bothy in 2023 and there's still people who have this urge to sort of scratch a memory into the, into the wall to talk. It's like the, we was here thing, you know, exactly, yeah. it, it's just making their mark on that place and they're contributing to that history. And I think it's an incredible thing. And it's um, interesting how the graffiti can speak of something so specific. Yeah. Um, if I remember correctly, one of the, one of the passages on the walls of this, reindeer herding cabin um whose door was was half broken and the glass had all been smashed it hadn't been yeah. used hadn't been taken care of in years mm-hmm. but one of the passages on the walls um it was in swedish i think but if my my, my swedish skills are basic at best but if i understood it correctly um it it read spent a stormy night here um, and the date was like 1991. 
Nice. So, yeah. <laughs> and you do you do find the same thing in the Scottish Highlands too. And photography is also a way of, of making marks. And, yeah, um, of course. And uh, marking our presence in the world. And uh, it's an expression of, of our being there. Yeah. Um, yeah. But also I think photography is... Uh, Photographing these spaces also gives you the opportunity to stop being who you are in a way mm-hmm. because your life in the civilized world is put on hold and yeah. all these mundane tasks that you regularly have to do, they, they don't matter anymore. What matters is, as you say, some people make the bothy their goal. Mm-hmm. And so what, what matters is reaching the bothy um, cracking open a bottle of whiskey with a complete stranger who's yep. just as wacky as you are to be there <laughs> and exactly. having one of the, I've had some incredible evenings in, in Bothy's with strangers. Yeah. I mean, I'd say that, you know, nights in Bothy's are better than any party I went to when I was at sort of university or oh, my teenage years. Just, it's just such a, a positive environment to be in. Everybody is just there for the same reasons as you are. Um, sharing food, sharing whiskey, sharing fire. There's no phone signal. There's no electricity. So there's no distractions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you just whittled it down to sort of those, you know, conversation and good food and drink. And that's yeah. it. And there's no phone signal either. So there's no, absolutely no, no distractions to the conversation. No, no none of that. And um, it, you really do access perhaps a, a deeper truth of what it, what it means to be human and break bread with other people. Yeah, especially in an age that's full of of distraction and um, that's always trying to take us away from from the moment in which we stand. Yeah, and I think it's it's ironic that you have to go to somewhere so remote and isolated to have a true human connection with someone. <laughs> I think it's you know, so like you go to somewhere like London and you sit on the underground and you know you you're surrounded by thousands of people and. You're, you're, you're barely making eye contact, but you mm-hmm. go to somewhere in the middle of nowhere and you bump into one person and you can be talking into the early hours to them. Um, I think, yeah, that's, that's one of the, away from just the photography side of it. It's one of the reasons why I fell in love with going to Bothy's and why now even, you know, a few years after finishing the project, um, I still find myself going back to them because I just being there just puts me in such a good place, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I always look forward to, to going to a new one. One yeah. that I've not been before. Yeah. And letting the history sink through you. Mm-hmm. And you've spoken about how many of the Bothies were once the home of shepherds and gamekeepers, for example. And what fascinates me about these buildings is, well, as we've spoken about, is what their walls reveal about the culture and so- social history of the landscapes within which they are situated. And since many of these images have also been made in rural landscapes marked by a significant decrease in population throughout the last few centuries. What do you think your photographs about these bothies reveal about the contemporary meaning of the Scottish Highlands and perhaps the meaning of the wider British landscape in general, seeing as not all of these photographs were made in Scotland? Yeah, 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 sure. I mean, obviously the bulk of them were Scottish because Scotland's the mecca of, of bothying, right? But, you know, Northern England and, and Wales too. I think we've touched upon it already. I think there's, you know, 
I think there's definitely a, a, a danger as a photographer, and I think it especially happens in Scotland, of sort of romanticising the Scottish landscape a little too much, you know, and, and talking about it as a place of um, the, the back of beyond and somewhere that's kind of inhospitable. But it's a lot of people, they do forget, and photographers especially forget, that it's not, it's a, it's a lived and worked landscape. Mm-hmm. You know, and these buildings, yes, people go there, and for the most part, they're going there for recreational reasons. They're going there for a good crack, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But I think what that demonstrates, the fact that people still have a, a desire to temporarily inhabit these landscapes, it, it demonstrates, I think, a yearning for wild space and to spend time in wild space, mm-hmm. something that is lacking in the UK compared to other countries. Um, and so I, I think, yeah, I, I don't I wouldn't say my my photographs just just play play into that story, that wider story, really, of this over overarching sort of desire to spend time in these places, um, but to inhabit these bothies and keep their history alive. Yes, they are now bothies and they are now places of refuge. But I think by keeping their inhabitation alive, I think it's a homage to to their past life as 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 working environments you know because yeah. for many the highlands it, it was the factory floor for many wasn't it yeah yeah um and i think yes our reasons for being there are different but i think there's a there's a huge love and um appreciation for these places that you know is echoed by the mountain bothies association and their their unwavering um sort of desire to keep these places alive and well for for you know for future generations to enjoy yeah Especially after the history of the Highland Clearances, you could argue that the Bothies are, in fact, what remains of the Highlands. Yeah, they're yeah. the last kind of flickering beacons of human habitation in these yeah. in this place. Apart from the the landlords and the estate owners. Well, yeah, apart, yeah, <laughs> apart, apart from the uh, yeah, <laughs> apart from the light pollution from the from the massive estate houses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's. Um, I think it's when you go to the Bothies, it's as much a, an experience of the landscape as it is history mm-hmm. and cultural history and social history. And I think that, well, that's why, that's why I go there when I, th- when I reflect on it, mm-hmm. I don't go there just for the, to see the mountains. No. I go there to, to feel, to feel this architecture, to feel the space, yeah, to feel situated, and, to look out, yeah, and the building yeah. allows you to be situated, mm-hmm. because you'll you'll understand the weather in this part of the world can can be uh, very unpredictable, mm-hmm. and there are moments when you don't even want to be in a tent. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, Bothies, I, I think that Bothies are far more comfortable than tents. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, just being able to stand up is quite nice, um, you know, and sort yourself out after a wet day. Um, but no, but I, I have I have absolutely, I love, I love hill walking, but I'm not a Munro bagger. Like I don't have a desire to yeah. summit and conquer. No, absolutely. I, 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 want, the- I want to be enclosed within i don't want to be standing on top um and i think you know bothies allow that do you but think they allow are, you to do that do you think Sorry, there are on. two types of outdoors people then 
There's the Bosnia so. baggers and the Monroe baggers. Yeah, I think that those those that want to look down upon and those that want to sort of be become. encased within and become. Yeah, become the yeah, space. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I'm definitely more, I lean towards the latter. Um, you know, I've, obviously I've been up some lovely hills, but there's there's that kind of the Casper David Friedrich issue of, of gazing down upon the landscape and like dominating it mm-hmm. rather than it being larger than you and you just being sort of tucked down within it and yeah. looking out onto it. Um, so yeah, for me, I, I very much fall into that, into that category, I think of someone that, that finds a lot more satisfaction from being in, being down below. Can you think of, above. can you think of any particular Bothy where you really felt at one with the space and and the landscape of the wider environment. Oh, good question. I think, to be honest, although they're called mountain bothies or the mountain bothie association, anyway, I think the ones that are like Peen Minich back when that was a bothie, when it was you know, if you're there in a storm, or even Kiavik up on Cape Wrath, um, that I know you're planning to visit shortly. Um, I've been there before. You've been there yeah, before yeah. as well. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. But when you're that far north. And you you know how far north you are, mm-hmm. and you've got you've got the little boat across. Is it the Kyle of Tongue? Uh, the Kyle of Darnes, I think. Oh, is it okay? Yeah. And then you 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 walk up up to under Kirvake Bothy, and when that sea is raging, and the wind is howling, I mm-hmm. think that is the place where I've most felt sort of um, just dialed in to that place. Yeah. Well, that you space know. is so wild. Yeah, it's just bleak. um, It's so wild that my iPhone thought that I was taking a picture in the Faroe Islands. Oh, did it? Yeah, I think I was taking a picture behind a cliff and the GPS wasn't matching up very well. And so I'm pretty sure that um, it gave the location data on my phone as the Faroe Islands. Of the Faroe, wow. So yeah, but that that is obviously the next landmass if you go far enough. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And if you just, you know... I know it sounds daft and obvious thing. But if you got a map of the world and you got drew a straight line from Cape Wrath and drew it across, you'd be surprised how far north you are in comparison to some of the Nordics or anywhere else in the world. But if you're you follow, f- if you followed it, uh, a bearing com- exactly north, you would yeah. hit the North Pole. Yeah, you would hit the ice sheet of the the Arctic. It's incredible. There's not much there. Um, you know, if you miss if you miss the Fair Islands by a few degrees, then you're you're going to the pole. Yeah. <laughs> and if you if you if you if you sit in Kirvay in a storm and you know that fact, changes the whole dynamic. But all of the Bothies, no matter where they are, they have this many of them at least have this very isolated feeling to mm-hmm. them. Yeah. It's not just you don't need to go to Cape Roth or Kirvig or um I've also been to Achnanklach up there. Oh yeah. I've, yeah, I, I've been and to Achnanklach. Glendu, I've walked mm-hmm. to Glendu and back. Yeah. yeah, I didn't stay the night there. Um, yeah, these these are very remote. I mean, that Sutherland is a very remote part of Scotland. In it, fact, it even is. to me, it feels like another country. Really, that's interesting. Yeah. And the poet, and the, the, the poet the Norman of- McCaig, Scottish poet Norman McCaig, he spent okay. a lot of time there. Uh, he went right. fishing there every summer. Okay. And so when I think about that landscape, I think about his poems and. 
he also spoke he he spoke of a of a of this part of the Scottish Highlands or the Northwest Highlands as again what was left of it. You mm. know, he he remembered it as a place that was once inhabited by communities. Yep. Before before this great population decline, mm-hmm. which we know under the name of the Highland Clearances. Sure. And so yeah, we 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 go to I go to the Bothies also to remember. Mm-hmm. Which ties into to which is another way of just of saying I go there to feel the history, essentially. Do you think that do you think a little part because of your heritage, do you think you feel a sort of is it more charged for you when you go to somewhere like that? I don't feel particularly at home in these places. Right. If that's what you mean. Mm. Uh, my dad's originally from Coventry. Okay. I, I'm, I'm Scottish. Yeah. I was born in Scotland. I consider myself Scottish or British or whatever. I'm not too, I'm not too proud about, I'm not really too proud about any label. And mm-hmm. you have to understand that it's the same as you move through England. There's not two parts of England that are the same. It's the, no. there's no, there's not two parts of the world that are the same in general. And it's the same in Scotland and each glen has, has a slightly diff, has a di- slightly different feeling. And I'm sure at one point had a, had a very diff, very different culture. Yeah. Even just glens. I mean, a glen away can also feel like a world away when you pass over yeah. the Bilach and down yeah. into another watershed you can feel, you know, um, you can feel that you're in a totally different landscape. Yeah, and I mean, even might, the weather the weather system can change from glen to glen as well. Yeah, if it's just clagged in over one, then yeah, you come up and over, and it can feel like you've you've travelled about twelve hours east, but actually you're just in the neighbouring glen. Yeah, yeah. Um, another um, there's another isolated bothy that you have in your project, mm-hmm. and it's the bothy on Sky. Yeah, uh, Cam Camu, Camusinery. Yeah, Camusinery. Well, that's how I pronounce it, Camusinery. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was afraid to picture it. So Camusinery or Camusinery? I'm not sure. It but. shows you how proud I am to be Scottish. You backed out of the pronunciation. I'm relying on you to name them properly. Um, but I always uh, when I think about your landscapes from this project mm. and also the portraits that are in this. Um, series of the people who come to spend a night in these bothies. I remember this photo of a man named Giles who's wearing a yellow boot. Yeah. And it all, it really sticks in my head for some reason. And it's, it's because it's just an odd yellow boot. Sure. And there's that strangeness to it that you find in photographers like Alex Soth. Hmm. I, I think it's very much like a portrait that he might make. Well, and thank you very much. I'll, I'll take that as a massive um, compliment. There's just something, something not, it's almost perfect. <laughs> yeah. And, but if it was perfect, it would be a boring image. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and because yeah. there's something out of balance about mm-hmm. it, it, it just, it just sticks in my head. And <laughs> who, who, who was yeah. this individual and why was okay. he, why was he at Kamasunari? Sure. Well, thank you. I mean, so first of all, I'll just say that a lot of the port, or all of the portraits in Black Dots were made of strangers with whom I'd shared the Bothy with the night before. That was sort of my remit was I'm not going to 
walk in with people and photograph them there. Obviously, you can't book in with Bothies or anything, so you don't know if you're going to have the place to yourself or if it's going to be full. So it was a roll of the dice, who I was going to find, if anybody. Uh, and this time on Sky at Kamasunari, Giles walked, had hiked in from Sligachan, I think, with his brother Hugo. And he was wearing, he'd hiked in wearing trainers or walking shoes or something. And he had wet feet. And so the two wellies that he's wearing in that photograph were found on the beach, on the bay at Cambacinnery, and he put them on while his shoes dried. <clears throat> so All there right, he so was. So the story is quite simple. <laughs> so the story is very simple. And he was wearing this big sort of Aaron jumper, knitted jumper thing. Um, he, it helps that he's a very good looking lad as well, very striking looking. Um, and And yeah, he was changed his shoes into these wellies and he was just pottering around in some of the little rock pools. And I was watching him from the, from the bothy and I thought I've got to ask. And luckily he was a very, um, he actually had his, his brother Hugo was had his 35 mil with him and he was taking loads of photos and there's a really nice portrait of me and Hugo standing in the same place. Um, and loads of photos of me taking his portrait and stuff. And we've actually kept in contact via Instagram ever since. Well, that's what's beautiful Um, about it. I'm the same. I've met some, yeah, some questionable yeah. figures that in no other <laughs> setting would they become my friend. But you, yes, of course. Yeah. But you, you bond over this uh, very unique experience. This, yeah. It's literally one night only in many cases. One night, yeah. I sometimes spend more than one night in a bothy. Yeah. Um, depends how far you have to walk in and how much I've committed to reach it. But yeah, yeah you, it really is. Um, you'll never get, every experience is different. Mm-hmm. Every bothy is different. Every bothy opens up uh, a new door of experiences. Each yeah. bothy is a different world of of experiences, and I don't, yeah, there is something deeply practical about them. They allow you to access a landscape which is which would be otherwise quite inaccessible. Um, yeah. But we've spoken about the history, but there's still we've all, and now we're speaking about the the social. The social yeah. aspect of them. And that's what one of the big things that the sort of the tentacles of Bothian kind of they they reach back home again when you 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 come home, but you've made these bonds and you've made these friends with people, and then that that connection and that relationship extends outside of the Bothy world and back into your everyday life again. And then you end up carrying the conversations on via messenger or text or or I'll put a story up, say I'm in Scotland and one of the guys I met in a Bothy five years ago might be up and we'll meet again. Um, and so that the kind of the network, the branches of Bothian kind of extend back and they, they feed back into your daily life again. Um, so you always, once you've spent a few nights doing it, you feel like you're plugged into that, that world constantly. I'm just thinking about, um, the image of Giles and Mm -hmm. now that I know what was going on behind the image. Yeah. And it's made me think about, you know, what can the photograph actually say about Mm -hmm. it's, it's, yeah, how how what can it say about this well, experience? It it's just if it's it's very it's a very it's like a granule of a very very it's a granule of an experience which overflows you. Yeah, 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 yeah of course. And it's funny. I mean, did you? I'm interested to hear, like, because a lot of people assume that he had just walked in wearing odd wellies. Um. 
I don't think I tried too hard to answer to answer yeah. the mystery. Um, yeah. Okay. But I thought that perhaps he'd found. Perhaps I had this intuition that he'd found the wellies in the bothy. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. you always find somebody's crocs. Yeah. Have, exactly. Ha- had a a whole, croc. Yeah. One croc, <laughs> a single croc that said a had a hole burnt through it. So that's why yeah. they've been left behind. Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, or, or especially these ones on the coast where, you know, all this, the sort of stuff just gets washed up on the bay. And he just happened to be very fortunate that day that um, some relatively dry footwear mm-hmm. in his size had <laughs> washed stuff on the beach, which is quite fortunate. It doesn't always work that way. You um, also have, um, uh, I think it's at the Bothy P and Mina. Mm-hmm. You have uh, an individual wearing military fatigues. Sandy, yeah. yeah. Well, what's yeah. the story behind that portrait? So Sandy had canoed in um, to Peen Minich and his canoe was left on the on the on the beach with his welly boots again, more welly boots against it. Um, and I I think that he had um, he I think he he half hoped that he had the bothy to himself. I think. And we, we, me and my friend, we turned up to Peen Minich and he was quite standoffish at first. I think he, he was enjoying his time. And if you spent time at Peen Minich, it's a very lovely place to spend on your own. Um, but over the course of the afternoon and evening, he, we warmed to each other and we ended up, you know, drinking and watching the deer grazing on the grass outside. Um, and then in the morning, as always, I, I was out with my camera. I photographed his canoe. Mm-hmm. with the bothy in the background and the wood smoke coming up yeah um and then as he was packing his bags i just said oh I'm, I'm i'm doing this project i'm making some photographs would you mind if because i learned very quickly that you know the worst that can happen is they can say no and they might think i'm a little bit strange but that's fine um but he said yes which is you know if you'd asked me if he was up for a portrait when i first arrived at the bothy it would have been a hard no mm-hmm. he you know, he didn't even want to engage in conversation but by the end of that that one night and into the next morning, he was more than happy to to have his photograph taken. Yeah, because that's that's one of the way ins to Pian Minich through Loch mm. Eilert. A lot of people right. canoe around the from Loch Eilert to okay around the coast, uh, ten kilometers or so. Sure. I, I've never done that. I've I've been there twice. I've stayed I've stayed there twice before it was a private bothy. Yeah, and uh, I just walked in over the. Arden, I think it's the Ardnish Peninsula. Ardnish, yeah. yeah. The the usual. I think you go over an old train track um, at yeah. the beginning of the walk. Yeah, that's uh, the it's, four, it's a beautiful walk in. to Malague line. Yeah, it's still active. Right? Yeah, yeah. Is it okay? I, I I recall there being a railway line. I couldn't remember if it was an an active one or disused. But yeah, yeah. it's a beautiful beautiful walk in. Um, and then that flat grassy area as you approach the Bothy, like stunning. What a great. I mean, it's sad. It's it's a shame that it's um. If you can it's now private. If you can withstand the bog. If you can withstand the bog, yeah, yeah there yeah. is that. But that, that's that's a, that's um that's what I would advise anyone just walking in Scotland <laughs> in yeah, general, yeah. I think. But this, did you always see this as a book? It was later published uh, as a as a book by the Highland-based publisher, another place, Press. Mm. Did you always see it that way? Was that always your intention? Um, no, it wasn't. I, I, honestly, I wasn't even thinking about where you know where this was going to go or or how it was going to be realized in its finished form you know i i just i knew that i had my the number of bothies that i wanted to visit that i felt was enough um 
And but it actually was quite early on, maybe halfway through the project, maybe just before where I started engaging with with Ian at another place press. And you know, you've got to love Ian. Yeah, what Ian he's Sergeant. achieved. Ian Sargent, yeah. uh, another place. Shout what out he's to achieved. Ian, Ian Sargent. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It, He'll be listening. Definitely. From the small Inverness Shire hamlet or village. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's um, yeah, and to 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 be able to achieve what he's achieved with another place um, on his own from from I think just from his shed. Um, exactly. I think is, is is proof that you don't need to be in the heart of London to um, make an impact on the photography world. Um, you know, I, I think so, that's I think that's so important to stress that yep. you don't, as you say, you don't need to be in London. In this case, you don't need to be in Edinburgh, or Glasgow. Um, no. Yeah, it's and it's about creating a community. And yeah, which he's he's done with the Another Place magazine and then Another Place Press as well. Like he's got just he he built this huge following, a huge community of people that every time they release he releases a zine or or a publication like it will it will it will sell so how 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 did you um design the book Was, so, did you design it in collaboration with Ian or yeah so it what's funny is because i shoot large format i i don't i don't i don't shoot a lot of i don't take a lot of pictures um so in a way you're sort of editing as you go um through being very selective about how you photograph because I, you know, I can't afford to be firing off 20, 30 sheets of film on one location. So when I'd lived with the same set of 40 or so pictures in a certain order for quite a long time as the project was developing. And so for me, I, I couldn't see past that, that sequence and that edit because that felt normal to me because I'd seen it every day. It was pinned up above at the end of my bed. It was pinned up and I sort of, would know where images were. And so I found it fascinating when I sent the work to Ian, he rearranged it and sequenced it sort of intuitively. And when he sent it back to me, it, it began, it began to came, come alive a little bit more and it worked. And so there was, there was obviously some back and forth and there were certain images that I, I didn't want published or pictures that I wanted in a certain order, but he very much, you know, would suggest layout and design and, I was just kind of feeding off him pretty much. Um, so did it was a collaborative manage, process, but. Did you manage to make it to a studio? Yeah, I, I'm not, not during, but since I, I've been there a few times since for, a, um, on various Scottish trips for a, for a cup of coffee and a nice bowl of soup that yeah, he makes. Yeah. What's he like? I what, only know, what, him, I only know him through oh, really? emails and, and Instagram DMs, but. Oh yeah. <laughs> Ian, if you're listening to this, I hope to meet you uh, one day very soon. <laughs> make it happen Ian um, what's he like uh, he's just just a really nice guy and I think you know I was thinking about this recently um, you know it's very you know I'm lucky that I, I've made a career in photography and I, I, I meet a lot of people through editorial work commercial work um, but it's very rare that you meet someone like him who you just you just really like the person and you do you know what I mean? Like there's something about him and his energy and the way he talks about photography and he's so inquisitive about what you're working on. And I just, I just gravitated to him and I just felt yeah. so, I don't know. He, he's just a really nice guy. <laughs> like, that's what I can really say about him. And what, what strikes um, me about what he's doing is he's not just doing something for Scottish photography or British photography. Hmm. He's also publishing works from further afield. 
Yeah, yeah, internationally. He, and yeah, he's, he's based in essentially what you would call the middle of nowhere in the Scottish yeah. Highlands. Just like, yeah, like out, out, outside of Inverness, like quite far up. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's great. Um, he, he's, you, you, you'll, you'll get on well with him for sure. Um, and well, I think what I, what attracted me to them, to him, sorry, at the, at the very beginning um, was before I really knew him was the fact that he was making an effort to make contemporary landscape photography accessible. In the, in, the, in the documentary tradition. In the documentary tradition. Yeah. In that he would price, I think, Black Dots when it was released, was £16 or something. Mm-hmm. You know, in a, in a time when photo books, you know, you, you go on certain booksellers and it's, you know, 35 up to 65 £70 pounds for a book. Now, sometimes that's fine. But when you're dealing with something that Bothies, which historically have been used by working class people who go out into the hills and interact with these places and then return home. They, you know, they're not going to spend 75 quid on some sort of artistic book about Bothies. You know, yeah. it's, it's almost, it makes a mockery of, of the, of the very people that uh, are using these places. And so I think I, by pricing it at a 16 pounds, it, it meant that people outside of the photo book world which is a very small world, really, when you compare it to the world, you know, mm-hmm. um, they were able to, or felt able to buy a copy and would happily buy a copy. And so I've had a lot of people who bought the book who aren't photographers or wouldn't necessarily go on another place press to buy a book, but because it was bothying and because it was hill walking yeah. related, it resonated with them. The simplicity of that concept is, mm. is very, yeah, it's a very, it's a very important consideration. Sure. It's almost like you're making photography accessible in the same way that these bothies make accessible yeah. a landscape that would otherwise be the domain of estate owners. Of course, exactly that. Uh, and so there was really, really nice, um, strong parallels between Another Place Press being a suitable publisher and, and the subject of the work. Um, not also to mention that the, most of the work was made in Scotland. And so it kind of felt fitting yeah. to, to use Ian. Um, but, but yeah, so it was, it was, uh, it was one of those, I, I didn't send it. I didn't pitch it to any other publishers. Ian reached out. It was a, a hard yes from me and the process was really, really easy and quick. Um, yeah. and yeah, it, but that's just not just cause it's in a book. doesn't mean it, you know, I, I still, as I said earlier, I don't feel as though just because a book's been published and the project's been finished doesn't mean that I have to stop interacting with the subject. And so I'm, I'm still very much involved in the Bothy community and network. And I still go and spend time in these places, even though I'm not making a project and I'll still photograph them on the large format camera. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause you know, it, they've left a sort of lasting impression on me and have, have led to other work and other things happening in my, you know, in my working life. So mm-hmm. eternally grateful. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm at risk of sounding unfair to the estate owners. <laughs> Go on, some of I'm sure whom, they can take it. Now, nah, some of whom have a tremendous um, responsibility, and mm-hmm. some of which also do uh, conservation, have massive ongoing conservation projects, yeah. which we're about to move on to uh, when we discuss your project Carpathia. Mm. Um, 
I think many of the estate owners are quite happy that we're using using uh, the land responsibly. Um, but we've also got uh, Scots Law to thank you to thank for that as well, which I don't believe this uh, freedom to roam, which I don't believe you have in England at all. No, not well. We we have uh, an iteration of it, but nothing as 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 um, all encompassing as as yours, unfortunately. Um, it's a bit like what's going on in the Scandinavian countries as well. It's mm. very similar to um, what they what they call here in Finland, every person's right. Ah, oh, they have that in the, in Austria as well, don't they? And in I think that's I think that. that's really important. And I liked how you um, drew the distinction between, uh, or drew this distinction of Bothies as as a working class, traditionally, mm. not just um, not just the people that used them or still use them, or, but they they were also as we as we've mentioned, uh, homes of of shepherds and gillies yep. and mm-hmm. gamekeepers. Um, Positions certainly were positions of responsibility, but they low in the economic food chain. Um, yeah, and yeah, it just it just uh, presents a lot of questions about well, the more implicit questions of of land use and land management. And when I think about your work, Carpathia, uh, and what I understand about that project, mm. I can see, I can see a thread here between between. Black Dots and Carpathia, mm. questions of, of land management, land usage, and who has rights to the land and the different ways uh, by which we we conserve the environment or... Yeah, t- tell us about Carpathia, this project sure. you've been doing in the Romanian uh, in, countryside. In the, yeah, in the Carpathian mountains. Um, so, yeah, so Carpathia was... Um, in 2017, Black Dots won the environmental bursary with the Royal Photographic Society. And that was a, I think it's like £3,000 to start a new body of work that had an environmental focus. Um, and at the time, I'd become, through no other reason other than pure curiosity, I'd become fascinated by this term that I was hearing a lot more and more and more back in 2017, which was rewilding. Um you know, I'd, I'd read George Monbiot's Feral. I'd seen his TED Talks. Um, I'd become sort of interested in this concept of rewilding. Um, but what led me to Romania um, was an organization called Foundation Conservation Carpathia, who are trying to establish a wilderness reserve deep in the southern Carpathian mountains of Romania that they're coining as, as being Europe's answer to Yellowstone. Um, but what I felt was really interesting about their project in terms of the rewilding conversation was unlike Scotland and other places in Europe and across the world where rewilding is centered around the reintroduction of species or trying to put back what they've once lost. In Romania, they've got the largest population of large carnivores, the largest area, surface area of virgin forest. And so really for them, it's the opposite. It's about protecting what they still have as opposed to reintegrating things that have, that have, that they've lost. And this was all being played out in a, in a country that statistically is one of the poorest in the European union, but one of the richest in terms of biodiversity. 
And so all of these little elements led me to Romania and led me to investigate this further. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I, I traveled out there um, on a recce trip and, and traveled from Timisoara to, to Brasov and then back and met Foundation Conservation Carpathia or members of in a valley called the Dambavita Valley um, in the Rukar hunting area and struck up a conversation with them um, because initially I was thinking about doing a sort of wider project about Romanian rewilding efforts. Um, but after meeting with this one organization, I felt as though they, that, that should be, that should be the story of how is, how do you create a wilderness reserve? How is a national park established? Um, you know, I live on a national park, um, but in the UK, you know, they, they've been established for a while. I want to understand how a new one of this magnitude is created in a country that, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think of in terms of something this of this size being created, you know? Um, so yeah, so I, I've been chipping away at that since 2017, um, obviously COVID, um, and Brexit made made it a little bit harder for me to, to do. Um, but I'm still, I'm still, it's one of those bodies of work that, that the photography is led by their work on the ground. And so, a lot of the things that they're doing now, you're not going to notice for another five or six years. Therefore, the project can't be summed up in a 12-month or two-year thing. It just has to be chipped away at for many, many, many years, uh, sort of echoing the way that they would approach the project as well, you know. Um, and so I'm, I'm working with forest replanting teams who are dealing with huge areas of deforestation that has, you know, a problem that has plagued Romania for years, wildlife monitoring teams who collect samples and genetic analysis of of bear wolf lynx deer fox boar to try and build up data of of species and numbers of species and local communities as well who you know who have for for many 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 years lived off of lived off of the land and and how an organization like this manages coexistence and how how can a, an organization you know work with local communities who suddenly find themselves in a protected area um, so there's lots, there's lots of things happening with it. Um, I've also tried to move away from just using photography as a way of talking about it. And so I'm including camera trap stills, um, that have been placed by the forest rangers on the ground, mm -hmm. um, LIDAR scanning of ancient beech trees, so do 3d modeling of forests and ancient forests. So I'm kind of, there's lots of, lots of things happening. It's by no means a finished thing and it feels quite messy at the moment, but over time, I'll, I'll start to sort of, it'll split into chapters and it'll, it'll start to make a little bit more sense as a photography project. Um, but for now, it, it's it's really about gathering pictures and just trying to be as reactive as I can to when things happen over there. So it really feels like long form research based documentary project yep. that lies on the bridge, somewhere, somewhere on the bridge between art and science. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. And it, you know, especially now that I'm I've on a few assignments recently I've been I've I've used scientific data collection methods and integrated them into my edit of photographs um because I think there's some there's a beauty in some of the way this data is collected but also it it helps me to to talk about the subject in more depth away from just you know the problem with photography is a lot of the time you're limited to what things look like and mm -hmm. this is more than that and so you know, using their data, using the methods that they use on the ground 
and integrating that into a photo project. You know, so it's kind of a mixed media approach in a way. And it's also collaborative because the camera traps have been placed by um, Bogdan, um, who was the chief wildlife ranger. And I've worked with him on understanding like how this technology works. Um, and then I build sort of yeah. diptychs and triptychs out of some of those kind of stills to in- include wildlife. I'm not a wildlife photographer uh, and I don't want to be, but you have to include the wildlife as part of this story. So how do I do that? Well, let's use the, their data collection methods as a way of including that. Um, I'm really so yeah, interested. A, um, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was saying, so it, it's very much this kind of, it sits, as you said, at that conference between art and science. Um and it, yeah, it's, it's, I'm treating it very much as a collaborative project now. I'm really interested by the way that you you use and incorporate camera traps into this mm. project. It seems like a very passive way of making images compared to the very active way of making images when you're in control of a large format camera, for example. Yeah. You're just you're simply relying on the on the sensor to take the image. Yeah. Yeah. And and relying on the knowledge of the trackers um and the rangers who know understand where these 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 animals are most likely to be. Um and then being patient. So there there is an element of patience that is echoed in, in working with large format or just working with analog in general. Um, you know, you you don't really know what you're going to get. Um, and you don't really get to see the results for a while. So there are similarities there. Um, but obviously, you know, you're dealing with polar opposites. You're dealing with black and white, low resolution digital files versus color, large format, very high quality scans. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I'm working out ways to make that work. As I say, that the sort of work that's on the website currently is is very much a sort of snapshot of the work. You know, it... it it hasn't quite, there's not enough of it yet to split into the three chapters I want to make. Um, so the work on, on online is because it's such a long project along the time. I've also pitched it to, to magazines and newspapers and stuff. So I've had coverage of the work as it's developed. So there's a snapshot of that on the website, but hopefully in time I'll be able to release more of it. There's another photographer that uh, made the project using camera traps another british photographer stephen gill yeah uh, yeah the, the post or the pillar i think the yeah. pillar yeah how, how much was that was that an inf- is that an influence <laughs> i mean obviously now I, I didn't know of him um the, the night procession and the pillar before um i did i started thinking about camera traps but obviously now i've seen him his work it definitely yeah it makes me think more about how that can be implemented in this way um, but, but no, at the time it was very much, I was just thinking purely at it from a scientific data collection sort of angle. I wasn't thinking about, you know, I actually had all the camera trap stills for a long time as research. I didn't think about including them in the project. And it was mm-hmm. only then I started looking at them a bit more and going, oh, actually I could just include these and make, yeah. pair them together with diptychs. So there's, there's one, my favorites is a pack of wolf, three wolves moving through like a clearing in a forest. Um, and they're walking towards the camera trap. And all you can see is their, is their eyes. <clears throat> and one of the ones in the background, they're moving quite fast. And so the eyes are kind of streaked. It's like a long exposure almost. 
Um, and they kind of it's, it's it's not quite clear what these animals are. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, aesthetically very very different to the way that I would approach my my photography. Yeah. Um, but it's an interesting pairing. And yeah, like I say, and introducing LIDAR as well into my work. I've, I've been learning a lot recently about LIDAR mm-hmm. um, and sort of 3D modeling and, and spatial scanning with lasers and stuff, which is, is fascinating. And I'm, I'm kind of, I've just finished a job where I've been using that in Romania, which will then feed back into this project as well. I think it's, I think from the perspective of, of being a documentary, well, again, I'm, I'm not, I'm not so proud that, I'm always trying to label myself, but mm. I think whilst I'm very much married to this traditional way of making images myself mm. in a in the kind of traditional definition of, of photography, um, this lens-based kind of practice that's looking out at the world or looking at the world, I think it is quite interesting to see the novel ways by which photographers of my species so to speak <laughs> are, are breaking up this way of working while still being true to that way of exposing images <clears throat> yeah yeah I think I think for me it came from a place of just being hyper aware of, of work that was being released or being put out into the world by by other photographers and photographers I admire and questioning all the time, does the world need another work body of work like this? You know? Um, but I think more so with Carpathia, I'm respecting the subject of the work and the work of the, the organization and, and trying to, to, to photograph it in a way that doesn't feel like 1990s national geographic coverage of an NGO mm-hmm. at work. So it's still contemporary landscape slash documentary practice, mm-hmm. but also making sure that I'm effectively communicating the work of the NGO as well. And it's finding that balance between the two. Like I'm not there to just, you know, flex and, and, you know, show off my large format camera and try and make portfolio worthy work. You mm-hmm. know, it's, it's about, shining a spotlight on what this organization is doing as well. And so I have to be able to do both. I have to make images that I'm happy with, that I'm proud of. So it's the, not, but, go on. You're, you're, you're transcending <clears throat> the poetics of the image yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. So your images are, they're, they're beautiful images and there's clearly a very careful attention to, to the way that you look at light and the way that you record mm-hmm. light. That's what strikes me about these images and some of your other images, which we'll soon speak about. But uh, yeah, they're they're, they're not sim- these images are not simply poetry. They mm. are. Would you would what would you make of that statement? I agree. I agree. I mean, they. I, I don't know what it. I, I I photograph them in my usual way that I would. You know, I I use. I think the large format camera does help. Um, in the way that I compose and the way that I frame and the way that I, 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 I wait for certain events. Um, but it's not the, the, uh, the subject isn't the landscape. A lot of the time, the subject is the things that are happening within the landscape. And so, you know, there's, there's an image of um, a forest replanting team on this slope. And actually the light, the light isn't that nice. It, it wouldn't be the sort of conditions I would usually shoot in. 
but the forest replanting teams only work during those hours. And so I'm not going to ignore all the hard work these people are doing purely yeah, because yeah. the light isn't quite right, you know. Um, nor am I going to encourage 20 local villagers to stay up planting spruce trees at sunset. So you, you have you have to work in this situation. That you, you, It's almost working quite editorially and you deal with what you've got. But you try and photograph it in a consistent way that ties in across the whole body of work. Do you think in that sense you're you lean towards a bit more of the classic definition of documentary photography. I think so. I think there's definitely a, there's more of that in this body of work than any of my other projects, I think. And I think that's almost because there's, that's almost been forced out of my control. That's sort of the way I have to work. Not to mention that, you know, I'm I'm working with um, people that don't speak English, obviously. I, I don't speak very good Romanian. So there's that barrier to overcome the locations they're working in are really, really remote. And I'm, I've got, I'm working with, I'm embedded with a team of rangers. So I have to be sympathetic to, they have to do their job as well. Um, and so a lot of the time I'll be there for a week and I only take three or four pictures because you have to wait for moments to just present themselves to you. But you, as long as you expose yourself to those, those opportunities and you allow yourself to be in the right position at the right time, um, then, then you're fine. But you, it, it's a, it's a long, long process because I'm just riding around in the back of a Dacia or on a snowmobile or trekking through the forest and sometimes nothing that interesting happens. So it really involves being open and being attentive. Yeah, exactly. And just paying attention to everything and listening to conversations and because some of the things they mention um, aren't, to them aren't, wouldn't be interesting to me. But actually, they, cause they, it's, it's, they don't quite understand what I'm there to photograph a lot of the time. Like they think I just want to be at the top of the mountain looking at the nice view. So when they go, oh, no, we've got to go over here now because a bear's attacked a pig and we've got to put a bear cage down with some bait in it. It's quite, and they do that every day. For me, I'm like, no, 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 that, that, I want to come. Like, that's exactly what I want. And they're like, why? This is boring. You know, it's like, well, no, actually, it's not to me. It's interesting. Um, so, yeah. yeah. It's always There's difficult. A- <laughs> That's always the difficult thing, um, mm-hmm. trying to explain to people that aren't photographers why yep. you're interested in photographing something that they would they yeah. perceive as mundane. Yeah, exactly. And I think as a coming in as a British photographer working in Romania, there was a level of not suspicion, but I think they were like, "Oh, here we go." You know, another another um, British photographer who wants to make a story about. Um, Ceausescu uh, crumbling yeah, or communist buildings post-communist theme yeah something yeah. communist related or Dracula focused um you know and of which I made there are it. many examples <laughs> there are many yeah. many examples but I um I, I I I made it very clear early on that I wasn't interested in yeah. in p- painting a picture of Romania that I think they were fearful of me painting a picture that's already been painted a million times of mm-hmm. you know um, old ladies carrying baskets of bread babushkas. out of crumbling. Yeah, babushkas. <laughs> and just kind of this this kind of tired post-communist sort of industrial landscape. And yeah. I, I I was more interested in 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 a more hopeful and positive story yeah. of something that's something good that is actually a you know an, an example or a blueprint that actually the rest of Europe can probably follow. Mm-hmm. Um and I think once I managed to convince them of that 
that got me a lot more access to places and people as well. So there's something quite universal about the theme. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and, and the questions relating to the environment. Yeah, exactly. But the, the difficult part with, with them was not, as we've discussed, not swinging too far the other way when they assumed that all I wanted to do was, is photograph bears yawning and screaming and landscapes at sunset. You know, it was, it's like, yeah, yeah. I don't want to do communist stuff. I don't really want to do all of that either. Um, so in the end, it was it was more a case of guys. I'll just come with you in the car, and I'll just go where you go. Like, don't do anything specially for me. Let's just I'll come out with you, and we'll see what we find. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the more I go, the more my network expands over there, and I've got really good friends over there in the organisation who can get me even better access. And you know, so now I'm at a point now where I I can sort of go beyond perhaps what a press team would get if they were visiting and doing a story. So in, in what way do the, do these questions of land management in your project Carpathia relate to the questions that you had in your previous series, mm. Black Dots? It's, very, it's a very difficult question because land management in Romania is handled so differently to how it's handled in the UK. Um, in the, in Romania, the entire landscape is divided into tiny little land parcels and each one is a hunting area and each hunting area has a hunting association who have a quota of animals they can shoot and hunt in a certain year. Um, and it's decentralized. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so complex. Um, this is what makes this, their project and their initiative so difficult is that in order to create a wilderness reserve, you have to first piece together all of the individual sort of jigsaw pieces of land that make up that area. And to do that, you've got to wait for the current lease to expire. It then goes to auction. They have to then outbid the hunting association, but you can only own a hunting area if you have a hunting association. So, so it's the NGO- quite bureaucratic as well. Very, yeah. yeah. And so the NGO have had to form hunting associations but then they don't employ any hunters. Mm-hmm. So they found a loophole in the system. Yeah. So they can go in as a hunting association, bid, win, and then they might have to wait another 15 years to get the one next to it. So they're slowly being pieced together. So it's a very different system to, to Scotland where you've got a relative handful of people owning quite large areas of land, um, as opposed to Romania where you've got hundreds and hundreds of tiny parcels. Um, so yeah, it, it's a very, it's a very complicated system. And so who, who are the people that, who, who is, who are the people that are looking after, after the the landscape in Romania? Uh, well, you obviously with the hunting, the hunting associations just deal with hunting. Um, but within there you have communes and villages and shepherds who, who, graze their sheep on the alpine meadows during the summer and then it'll bring them down in the winter. Mm-hmm. So it's very, it's a lived and worked landscape still. And it is inhabited apart from the Fagarash mountain range, which is, is uninhabited completely around the sort of periphery of that, of that mountain range. There are countless tiny communes and villages that rely very much on, um, logging within quotas and, and hunting, um, within quotas as well. Um, so it's very much a landscape with a relationship built upon um, 
a, sorry, a life built upon a relationship with the land. So the so within this area, in the Carpathian mm. Mountains, there are multiple ways of of relating to the land and countless modes of land stewardship. Yes. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, which, when you then throw on top of that a sort of, oh, you're now a protected area, mm-hmm. and these things that you've done you can no longer do that obviously creates conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea of coexistence, not just between um, us and the landscape, but also the people that live there and the organization as well. So there's lots of conflicts happening and it it gets very confusing, very complicated when you're stuck in the middle of this and they're all yelling at each other in Romanian and you're not really sure what's going on. Um and so a lot of the time I'm I'm sort of trying to decipher whether this is a situation that is relevant to the project or, um, or you know, it's something that's worth photographing or I'll photograph it and then follow up later with questions and say, look, what was the situation here? Because obviously I don't want to make the NGO look bad, but we have to accept that there's going to be some conflict somewhere and people that don't necessarily agree with the area becoming protected. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's a whole politics that yeah. you have to negotiate with. Exactly. And People I've been are probably wondering with... right now why we're talking about the, the nitty gritty <laughs> of, of land management. But I think it's, yeah. I think it's important to stress that if you, if you wish to embark on a, a long form research-based documentary project such as this one, particularly one that mm. bridges art and science, you need to spend a lot of time with people, speaking to them, learning yeah. from them, negotiating access uh, convincing them why it's a good idea to yep. give someone like yourself access um exactly that i, I think it, i it, think that's important it, to stress yeah for sure and it's 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 never it should never be about an individual going into a place with a camera and leaving i don't think mm-hmm. um i think places like this and and if you're going to tell stories like this they deserve your attention and they deserve time that's the least you can do is give it time mm-hmm. um and through doing that not only does it strengthen the work and the photographs you can get but it strengthens your network it strengthens um your ability to gain access and it builds your confidence with each trip um and you know the, the scientific element, if I'd gone in there in 2017 and photographed this in one year, I wouldn't have even thought about the scientific element because it's taken a lot of time and I've slowly chipped away and learned different aspects of it. Now it's taking on this whole new dimension, mm-hmm. which I'm really excited about and it's completely transformed the way that I view the images now. So, you know, giving yeah. it time, just, yeah, that's my, my, if I, if anyone was asking for advice, which they haven't, but if they were, that's what I would say. Yeah. Well, it, takes me back to something that I said to you before we started recording our conversation. And one of the reasons why I started this podcast, I said Mm. to you that conversation with others is what saves the world. And it's by learning from others and uh, being open by what they have to teach us or show us, Uh, especially with a project like this, Mm. uh, especially the example that this particular part of Romania has to show us of how we can manage land and how we can resolve problems of deforestation and other grave environmental issues. 
can only really be solved by by dialogue and yep. through conversations, sometimes difficult conversations. Yeah, of course. And documentary photography, you know, especially when, when you're trying to, on a general level, when you're trying to uh, find access into a story, that can be very difficult. I've certainly experienced um, challenges when trying to uh, gain access to, mm-hmm. to certain communities that my project has, that my projects have led me through. Um, but it's by having these conversations and also by um, listening to what other cultures and communities have to tell us that over time, over, in your case, a period of years, mm-hmm. we build and sustain trust with other people. Yeah, of course. And trust is, again, something that is really important to stress as a documentary photographer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think respect for the people as well that you're working with, you know, don't just treat them as they are temporary sort of um, sitters for something that, you know, to help further your career, if you know what I mean. Um, absolutely. Like these, you know, don't just go in, make the work and then oh, cheers them. I'm done. I'm going to go and enter this into a competition and make money off the back of it, perhaps, <laughs> you know, like once the project is finished, keeping those networks aren't dead, keep them alive. Like they've, they've, they've helped you to create something that you're proud of. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's so important to keep those people in your life. Um, it's so disrespectful otherwise to sort of just close the door on them and that's consider it as another chapter in your life finished and onto the next. You yeah. Know? We must emphasize that photographing another means photographing another human being. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, approaching them with that, dignity and respect mm-hmm. yep and yeah listening and mm-hmm. not just with the ears um but with the heart you know yeah open yourself to the situation and exactly i can't emphasize that enough when i speak about the ethics or reflect on the ethics of, of portrait photography um mm. it's it's letting the face or letting the human figure speak to you yeah. Um, no, exactly that. Let's uh, go to the landscape that you consider home. Of course. Um, in in England, in the middle of Dartmoor National Park, in a mm. town called Princeton. <laughs> yeah. Um, Dartmoor National Park, of course, is a landscape which has inspired writers, artists, and poets alike for centuries and not least another photographer who I've had in the podcast and who I think you're also friends with Robert Darch mm-hmm. yep um, who he's made uh, a number of images there you you've been working on a project called Crucible with the photographic artist Gary Fabian Miller and you described this collaboration as the circumnavigation of the landscape of Dartmoor. Can you describe for us the the genesis of this dance and, and how you got to know Gary Fabian Miller? Sure. Yeah. So so Crucible, um, it's it's less of a sort of circumnavigation of Dartmoor as a whole and more of a, a study of a, an eight mile circle of Dartmoor. 
Um, but to understand that, you have to understand Gary and his work. So Gary is a cameraless photographer, um, and he is one of the pioneers in that field. And for the last three decades, he's made um, majority of his work is inspired by walk daily walks within this eight mile circle of Dartmoor that surrounds his home. He rarely adventures out onto the rest of Dartmoor. That is his subject, it's that eight mile circle. And he'll walk, he'll experience things, he'll feel things, he'll try and understand um, certain events, and then he'll go back, retreat into his dark room and try and recreate those moments um, chemically in his dark room using um, the enlarger, the light cibachrome paper um, shining through vessels and oils and, and, and things like that. And he reached out to me uh, after my Romania work got published in the Royal Photographic Journal. So Gary is a fellow of the RPS. So he saw the article and he was struck by the fact that it said Dartmoor based. <laughs> and he obviously lives about 20 minutes from me. So he invited me down um, to his, his home, his home in his studio. And we hatched this sort of idea of of trying to visualize or bring this this imagined landscape of Gary's um to life through photography and it's a collaboration between um a photographer that deals with um interpretation and memory of landscape using without using a camera um with myself who is someone that goes out into the landscape and tries to recreate it visually through the things I can see and experience using my five, four. Um, and so that, that started sort of during COVID, I guess. Um, and so this idea of daily walks, which we were permitted to do, um, fed nicely into the process of Gary and how he goes out onto this, this part of Dartmoor. And, um, so really it's, it's me, it's, it's not so much a call and response between my work and his work. But there's definitely similarity. So I'm, I'm going out into this area knowing Gary's work in my mind and understanding, okay, perhaps this is inspired by the morning sun burning off some fog over some heather because of the colour palette that Gary's used. And then I'll go out and try and find that and recreate that. Um, and yeah, and, and that, that, that lasted for the last sort of few years and it was exhibited recently at the Arnolfini Gallery um, as part of Gary had a, a large exhibition there called A Door that took over the whole building and, and Gallery 4 was dedicated to this crucible work with a selection of the large format prints and artefacts found on, on these walks, as well as a sort of three, four metre wall map that we created of this, the crucible area, you know. So there's something of, of the method of Richard Long to Gary's work. Yes, yeah. And perhaps the creative disposition of James Terrell in terms of mm -hmm. how he presents his, sure. his work. Yeah. And how he um, uses colour and light. Colour and light. Mm -hmm. um, and and there was, you know, something I noticed quite early on when I was, I was looking through Gary's work more sort of not just as someone, as an admirer of his work as I had done previously, but now as a collaborator trying to understand what he was doing mm -hmm. and circles and orbs um, bright central light sources and diffusing out outwards became quite frequent. And so 
something that I committed to doing a lot in my photographs was um, photographing into the sun, photographing towards the light source um, as his images, that's what his images feel like to me. Um, and so there's a lot of, of moon, stars, um, sun burning through fog um, to, to sort of try and come close to that, that kind of rendering of, of Gary's artworks. So what unites both of your practices is um, walking. Yeah, walking. So both walking. At, both walking, um, typically at the same time of day. So early morning walks or dusk walks. Um, you know, my preference is you know, I would, I'd, during cruise, but I was getting up at sort of four in the morning um, and doing four in the morning till sort of nine walking certain routes, pathways, meadow crossings, um, wading through rivers and watercourses. Um, you know, walking at that time of the day feels a lot more silent. It feels as though the atmosphere around Dartmoor hasn't been disturbed by the activity of the day. It's very still and quiet and it, that feeds into the way that I can photograph. Um, and similarly to Gary, um, that's typically when Gary will go out and, and, and do his morning walks um, at that sort of time. So although we never walked together, which I find really interesting. Have you ever considered doing so? We've, we've done sort of, we've got been out on the moor in groups. There's a, a group of photographers that occasionally meet up and we do these sort of um, meets, not photo walks, but kind of meets and we just talk about what we've been up to and is Robert do that what part of that he is yeah, yeah robert's part of that he told me that yeah yeah um called parallel pathways and but no we 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 never actually went for a long walk together it was very much i was i would be out walking sometimes he'll 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 email me and say what a beautiful dawn um and i'll reply with a photo of the camera so we would we would communicate mm -hmm. um but a bit, uh, an important part, I believe, of Gary's work and of mine is to be on your own. Mm -hmm. And so there was an appreciation of that. Let we let's work on our own, but retracing each other's footsteps and walking the same pathways. Um, you know, so there was, and obviously, the more you spend time with Gary's work, and then you spend time in that specific landscape, you begin to feel that Gary's everywhere anyway. <laughs> Um, there's like, you can start, you start to see the things that he's seen and his work begins to sort of make a lot more sense to me. I'm very interested in the, the title of the project crucible, mm. because in many of your images, at least there are literal crucibles, <laughs> yeah. celestial objects that like yourself are always returning to give the landscape its light and form. Mm-hmm. What keeps you returning to this place? I think, so obviously Dart Dartmoor's home to me. Mm -hmm. um, it hasn't always been home. It's, it's, it was, I grew up in Dorset, but my grandparents lived on Dartmoor and, and we always would holiday here. So I know, I know Dartmoor very, very, very well, but historically have sort of avoided photographing it. Um, because I always sort of, it felt it's home. It's not somewhere that I wanted to work. Um, but then the challenge that this project 
presented was that the area of Dartmoor in question is very heavily photographed. And so I relished the challenge of trying to find unfamiliar views and unfamiliar framing within one of the most heavily photographed parts of the national park. Um, and these returning walks to, you know, corners of meadows or farm tracts or, you know, cutting through hedgerows, these repeated, it almost became quite ritualistic, mm-hmm. especially as we came out of COVID. You know, a lot of people were talking about how COVID made their lives a lot smaller because they were confined to a space. But for me, my world became much bigger because I began to understand home and learn about this local landscape a lot more um, and avoiding the the tours and the main views for the most part and instead deciding to cut down um you know you see a little little um wooden lichen covered sign that says path that clearly hasn't been taken in 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 years and just taking that path and seeing where it goes and you end up with a unique perspective on a well-known hill but actually it's it's somewhere that no one stood for a long time and so i kind of embraced the the challenge of trying to reimagine a very heavily documented area you know presumably you were you've been following ancient rites of ways yes yeah um part of it so yeah, the two moors way um there's the mariners way um and so so loads of and a couple of holloways as well and sunken roads and sunken paths um corpse roads all sorts of things like that old pilgrimage routes um as well as as sort of forging my own and finding my own ways to connect one part of the moor to the next part of the moor so breaking your own path across yeah, across yeah, a, so, a well-trodden place exactly yeah and sort of figuring out okay and in particular there's a hill called hamel down which where is where a lot of the work was made and it's a landscape photographer's nightmare because there's nothing there. It's a big whale's back of a hill, but it gently slopes away on all sides. So you never really get a view looking like a clean view off of the edge of it. There's no tour or anything on top at all. Um, but the two moors way runs across the top and there are loads of burial mounds and burrows um, and, this around this time of year, the summit just gets awash with heather and gorse. And so instead I, I began to focus more on the patches of gorse and heather. And so there's a whole series of pictures made um, of just heather disappearing into fog with the sun burning through. And um, and these were all made, yeah, standing atop of ancient burial mounds and, and you know, next to sacred pools and like man-made sort of pools of water where they were dug to create sort of portals to the underworld so the spirits could pass from this world into the next and mm-hmm. all this kind of mythology that it's, it's a very charged area. And I, I felt that working there at sort of four or five, six in the morning, you feel that energy there. And I hope that comes across in some of the photographs. So how do you break a path across this well-trodden <laughs> place? If you could um, sum it up. <laughs> It's got to walk, man. <laughs> I, I know I, it's, 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 it's as simple as just as just making the work. You just get out and make the work. Yeah, you just you just you set in your like. I'm, I'm quite, as I said earlier in our chat, I'm quite stubborn, and I was like, no. I'm every morning. I'm going to get up at that time, and I'm going to go out with the five four, and I'm going to go for a walk 
And that was how it was framed in my mind. It was never, I'm going to go out and take pictures. I'm going for a walk. It wasn't ever, I'm going to go out and take pictures. Because if you don't take pictures, it feels like you've kind of failed in the morning. But if you're going for a walk, you've gone for a walk and it's been a good morning. Photography was just a bonus. That's kind of how I treated it. Um, And as soon as I stopped looking for images and just walking, stuff began to surface and like I began to notice things and see things that I, if I was went out there with a the photographer's eyes I probably would have missed yeah it's interesting how crucible compares to your previous projects black dots mm. and Carpathia and you also did a project but yeah you but the project that you originally did in Dartmoor was before all that yeah, yeah, that was my so that was my my degree project, the militarization work, which was sort of um, off the back of my uh, kind of love of the work of Simon Norfolk and Richard Mizrak, where I wanted to photograph landscapes of, of battlefield and battle space and all this sort of thing. And um, at the time, I didn't drive and lived lived on in Oakhampton on the edge of the firing ranges on North Dartmoor. So I, I made a, a series of pictures of these military outposts, which you know, small shelters in landscape talks about land use again. Mm. Um, you can, you can definitely see where ideas for black dots started forming in there. Yeah. Have you seen Melanie friends series, the plane uh, on Salisbury plane? I have. Yeah. yeah. Uh, similar yeah, themes in, there. Yeah, exactly. With the, the beautiful cover of the red flag in the fog. Yeah. 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 But yeah. A great well, body of work. But if we take all those, if we take the, the three, those three projects that came before the crucible, Yep. The Crucible seems, well, it strikes me as the most com- contempla- contemplative. Yeah. The most poetic mm-hmm. and the most collaborative of of the four projects. And it's yep. interesting to see how you begin with Black Dots, this very traditional way of making landscape images. Yep. Looking at the world, observing it. Carpathia, in which you, you you're beginning to experiment with different ways of making images, such as the camera trap, yep, and the lidar, and then in this one, I perceive this project as as incredibly contemplative. Mm. The images are to be sat with, yep, and again, it's it's marked by that careful consideration of light. And very soft light. I see that soft light appeals to you. Yeah. The, the mornings much. and the evenings are, are your favorite time of day. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I think, you know, it, it is contemplative. And I think um, that's, that's led by the fact that this landscape means, this place means so much to me. You know, I, I walked these very same hills with, my extended family, many of which are no longer with us. And so it's kind of when I'm out there, I, it sort of feels like everything's come full circle. Yeah. You walk to remember. Yeah, exactly that. And so I'm aware that I'm working on a, a body of work with, with Gary Fabian Miller. And that's, you know, it's, it's a, it's an honor to do that, but also it's very autobiographical and it's very personal. And I, I've finally sort of returned almost to where it all started, which was, I started through photography, through, pictures on family walks on Dartmoor. And Mm -hmm. now, you know, I'm 33 years old and I'm making this project about daily walks on Dartmoor. 
Um, yeah. And see, so I, I, yeah, I think I've, I spent a lot of time just sitting there and watching the light and just taking loads of time to make sure that each picture felt, you know, yeah, that you could, like you said, you, you, you'd want to spend time with it as I spent time with the place. Yeah. And unlike Carpathia, it feels as if there are no facts to be found in the crucible. Not really. No, yeah. it's, 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 uh, it's, um, it's just two, two, um, people talking about the same place, but using different languages. Mm-hmm. And responding um, to different histories of land usage once again. Yeah. Once again, exactly. Um, and it really, it, it's, it's probably the most simple of all the projects that I've made. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's probably been the most challenging because I felt as though I, I couldn't, I didn't want to do Dartmoor a disservice and I didn't want to do home a disservice. Um, but I'm, I'm proud of what Gary and I have, have made. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, it was lovely to see it on the wall um, in Arnold Feeney not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Is there still life left to this process or the, is yeah, the there is. final? I think the, the, the making of images is final. Um, that now begins the, the, the lengthy discussions of books and exhibitions and things like that, um, which we're engaging with currently, but through, through Miss collaboration with Gary, other things have happened. So I'm yeah, working yeah. on, um, documenting a land art project he's involved with. So, you know, and obviously we're both busy. And so the, we don't have our hours of time to sit down and discuss books, but hopefully we, we can, we can move forward with that, um, at some point, but it's nice to give it some between finishing the photography and talking about a book, it'd be quite nice to give it some breathing room. Yeah. Well, at 33, I think you can safely say that you are somewhat firmly in the tradition of British landscape art. <laughs> well, I'd lo- thank you very much. That's very kind. <laughs> thank but you. There's one last thing that I want to consider before okay. we wrap up our conversation. Sure. And, um, you're very much involved uh, with the with British landscape art and British landscape representation. Mm-hmm. But editorial assignments are as equally as important to your work as yep. personal and self-driven projects. How do you balance the two? Um, and what are the, what are the parallels and tensions between your personal work and your commissioned work? Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, for the longest time, I tried to keep them all separate and I was almost, you know, I don't know whether in part it was because I went to art school and, you know, the, the uttering of, of a, of a commercial practice was like working for the devil, you know, but in reality, I, I figured out very early on that if I wanted to make the personal work that I wanted to make, um, I, I needed money to, to do it and also live. But I also needed time and, and the best way of, of, of securing money and time as I saw it was to pursue a commercial practice as well. Um, and so, yeah, I, I work on sports advertising assignments um, as well as um, editorial work that is, is sort of closely linked to um, my personal work. So a lot of landscape based work for, you know, National Geographic, Telegraph Magazine, New York Times, Financial Times, people like that. A lot of that is born off the comes off the back of project work that I've made. Um, but the commercial practice is is so different. Like none of that's really on my website. I think there's one thing I shot in Dubai that's on my website, 
there was like a running and gym training campaign, but it feels so out of place on my site um, that it, it kind of, you know, it's up there as evidence that I, I do other stuff, but um, yeah, I, I kind of visually, I keep them separate, but I'm not, I'm not afraid to talk about it. And I'm not ashamed that I do it or anything like that because it, there are so many aspects of that line of work that feed into my project work, be that working with strangers, working in um, new environments, um, you know, responding to, to briefs, responding to changes in light, all this other, all this stuff that's photography, you know, it, it feeds into, um, obviously it, it helps me be a better photographer, which then feeds into project work. Um, but also it engages a different part of your brain. Like I, I work my best on projects when I've had time away from them. So if I can, you know, shoot a running campaign or something, you know, with a sports brand, um, and then do that and then turn off the landscape part of my brain for a fortnight or whatever. And then I can revisit my own work with this sort of renewed, you know, okay, right. I'm energized now because I've had some time away from it. Um, but crucially for me, I think something quite early on that I wanted is I didn't want to make personal work that I didn't want there to be a pressure to make money from it. That was, that was a key thing is, is I, I know a lot of photographers who they almost become fearful if, if they go out and make work that it, they have to make something that's like sellable or that can go into a book that can be sold and that they can make money off of it and they can survive. And I couldn't live with that stress of being out in, the landscapes and the places that I like to go, but have this kind of overbearing sense of like, you've got to make this work. You know, I don't want that. So I, 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 I do all my commercial work and my editorial work so that I can go away and, and have no external pressure when I'm making my projects. Mm -hmm. How different is the practical process of your editorial assignments compared to your process when you're working on personal projects, are you using large format for any of these commissioned assignments? Uh, no, no, not at all. So it, um, everything's digital for, for assignment work. So, um, yeah, digital medium format for the landscape stuff. Um, but yeah, mostly just full frame cameras and, you know, it's, I use lights and I, I, it's completely opposite. It's very different to how I would approach my own work. Um, but that's not because that's kind of my default. It's just because usually you're responding to a brief and you're responding to what whoever's commissioned you, what they want, you know, they might want a certain visual style that lends itself to natural light and something that looks similar to black dots or Carpathia, in which case you can mm -hmm. do that. But I want to be able to also do stuff that requires multi-light setups in the studio and on location. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it's just about, widening your skill set enough to be able to you know take on a, a good mixture of, of jobs and not you know feel as though you're losing out on work because you you haven't put in a few hours of time just to learn how to use another bit of kit mm -hmm. you know and you have been hired because of your personal projects haven't you yeah so um yeah and even um people i've met through commissions that have been booked off the back of my personal work have then led to other things that are so different from my personal work, but you can trace it back. Um, and so I did a story for the Telegraph magazine, uh, Camben Bothy and Glen Afric. Um, and that was obviously given to me because of my Bothy work, 
Um, and that was collaborating with a writer called Dan Richards, who wrote Outpost, um, which features Camben Bothy on, on the cover. Met Dan at the beginning of the walk in Glen Affric, spent the night with him in the Bothy working on this story, got on really, really well. Um, and I've since worked with him on a few other projects. And recently we, he is writing a new book called Overnight, which is about things that happen that keep the world turning or things that happen when the world is sleeping. Um, and we pitched a story of photographing Le Mans, the 24-hour endurance motorsport race in France, um, to Esquire magazine. And he recommended me as a photographer. And so I went out there and, and photographed in the Porsche garage for 36 hours straight. Mm-hmm. Um, but so shooting Porsche racing cars at Le Mans, um, so different to black dots on a 5.4. But if you trace it back, it's because of that network and because of that that connection of bothies that I made with Dan through the Telegraph that has then led to this other assignment. Um, so that's just another an example of how something that fe- looks on the surface be, to be very, very different to what I do. Actually, like you can kind of trace how it came to be through personal work and connections and networking and things like that. Yeah. Networking where you least expect it. Yeah, exactly. That, in the, yeah. It's often in a bothy. Yeah. <laughs> Those kind of experiences are often the most beautiful things as well. Yeah, absolutely. Because you can, you, I know myself, this is, this is an industry that um, you can't control. No. Um, very unpredictable and it's hard, it's hard work. Um, and this question, the next question will concern photographers who may be thinking the same. How, how do your commissioned works typically come about? Um, are you, how much pitching do you do? Or are you um, emailing photo editors or are they emailing you? Uh, how, you know, yeah, explain that, explain that process of, of finding work. Okay. Yeah. So the, let's start with editorial. Um, that is about a 50, 50 split between me pitching stories. So I spent when I'm at home, not working on, well, not making pictures, I'm, reading and researching and finding stories that, you know, could make something interesting. And sometimes I go, Oh, that that might make a nice project somewhere. So I'll shelve it. Others don't really need that. And I feel as though they're a really good editorial story. Um, and so 50% of it is, is researching little micro stories like that and pitching them to photo editors. Um, and the other half is, is I get emails from photo editors usually based on what I like to think because they, think i can take a good picture but usually helped by location so if i'm close to where the job is which Mm -hmm. is usually where it happens um or yeah if i'm traveling somewhere and i tell i'll sometimes tell photo editors if i'm going abroad i'm going away on a job i'll tell some photo editors i'm going to be in this place um and it just keeps me on their radar really Mm. um so that's kind of yeah it's kind of a mix really um and obviously f- feeding the machine that is Instagram as, well, as much as you can, um, which I, I, I really don't enjoy, but sometimes that helps. Um, commercial work, that is a completely different beast. And that that's usually through um, creative agencies that you're on their books and they've used you before. Um, and you'll just get an email out of the blue. But I, I very rarely pitch for that work. I kind of let that work come in when it comes in. Yeah, it's interesting that you're not uh, based in London. I, I said that to you earlier. Mm-hmm. 
and you instead yeah. you're based in Princeton. Um, <laughs> yeah. Why this small English town? <laughs> small. Rather than I mean, I, rather than where it really happens. <laughs> the thick of it. Yeah. Um, I just don't like Cafe Nero that much. I just don't need it in my life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I um I think. Well, first of all, location. I, you know, a lot of my work is, as we know, is, is rooted in landscape. And I think even though I'm not always photographing Dartmoor, being surrounded in a landscape that inspires you is only going to do good things for you. Even outside of photography, it's just good for your mental health to be somewhere that makes you happy, right? Um, but also, I'm, you know, it's it's home. It's it's where my my family have are and have been. And and in this day and age, I just don't. I just don't think that or I never thought that it was a requirement to live in London in order to be a successful photographer like I just I think those days are gone um and you know we have things called emails and trains now which can make which makes life a lot easier um and also just you know I've, I've got a studio in in Princetown um 30 seconds from my front door and for a space like this in London, you're spending thousands and in here, it's, you know, it's only a couple hundred quid. So, you know, it means I can set up a color dark room, have all my prints, my film scanner, everything. Um, and I'm spending a couple hundred quid as opposed to, as I say, as opposed to thousands, which is what you'd pay in the city. And I just, it means I can live a much more, much more relaxed life. Um, you know, um, I think many photographers will be glad to hear that, that you don't need to go to London to make it. You don't. I, I just, yeah. I mean, I've had people even when, when I was studying, people almost ex- think, assuming that that's what I was going to do, and well, that's what I, everyone was I'm going glad, to do. I'm glad to hear it myself. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, splitting your time between the Highlands of Scotland and Helsinki. Yeah, something <laughs> yeah, like very... that. Something like that. Helsinki's yeah. enough. Glasgow's enough. Sure. More, yeah. Okay. More than enough. More yeah. than enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but no, I, I, I'll be honest. I rarely even go to London for work. Like mm. I, I, I haven't been in London. I don't think for work since, since COVID before COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, something that might alarm some people that live in London, there are other places where things happen. Yeah. Um, they're actually much nicer. Um, and I'd much rather go to those, I think, than go to London. Well, uh, that was also a theme. Um, when we we're discussing black dots, Ian Sargent, in the middle of in the middle of nowhere, oh, in the middle making of nowhere, things make, happen, making it and, happen. You know, I, I started this podcast um, as a way to to build a community of, of mm. voices and perspectives and keep the conversation going uh, after I graduated. Yeah, and um, these conversations have been great. And oh, it's been a pleasure, it's, man. It's, I've enjoyed it. It's great to see. Ian Sargent up there hammering out all these books. It's great to see you in, in Princeton or Princetown in Dartmoor. Princeton, sorry. Yeah. Um, proving that you don't need the city. Yeah. And it's been, this conversation has been funny because having, having discovered your work probably over five years ago. Yeah. Uh, it's been a, a privilege to discuss your practice. Oh, thank you, man. It's it's strange how these things happen. Isn't it? Yeah. And uh, Um, hopefully our paths will cross very soon. Well, I do spend, yeah, I do spend spending increasingly more time up your way. So um, I I don't blame you. 
<laughs> it's a beautiful it's a beautiful part of the world yeah yeah you've, you've you've hogged all the beautiful parts of the uk so we now need to come and have a slice of it but yeah thank you for <laughs> uh giving me and our audience um quite the overview um quite the breakdown i think of yeah. your practice and thank also you. the relationship between um the way that you well this relationship between editorial assignments and and personal projects it's been mm. it's been good to to learn how you balance that and yeah thank you i mean sometimes it doesn't feel like i am balancing it but I, yeah it, it it's a fine balance but i think it's yeah it's i'm doing just enough i think to to make sure that i can work on things that i want to work on that mean things to me without starving yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is good well i'm sure i'm sure you're starving now so well, I, I can say anyone, anyone that is still listening, I mean, fair play. Like, yeah. well done. <laughs> All right, Nicholas. Nicholas White, thank you very thank much you. for having this conversation. Thank you, mate. Thank you for having me. If you happen to enjoy my conversation with Nicholas White, please consider supporting the podcast on Patreon by following the link in the description. Until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>